So if you'd like to turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 2, uh, we'll be, uh, begin by reading the, uh, the text this morning. So that's beginning uh, in verse 1, we'll be all the way through to verse 9. So that's Hebrews chapter 2, uh, verses, uh, verses 1 through to 9. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him uh, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's come now to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We ask that this morning you would be gracious to us and that you would be with us, that you would help us to see this reality, help us to see with eyes wide open the light that your word is, help us to see with eyes wide open the beauty of Christ that is written within it, help us to have ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have to say. Give us instruction in the way that we should live and give us grace in the gospel this morning. Help me, as I preach, to be full of kindness and grace and truth and full of mercy that your people may be built up in Christ. We ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Do Do you sometimes have that feeling as a Christian of all of a sudden coming to the realization that your heart no longer burns and Christ seems more distant from you than you last remembered. You look up from the day-to-day demands of life and your spiritual landscape looks far different from when you last remembered. It's like as a kid, or for some of us as adults, when you're out boogie boarding at the beach and you're having such a good time in the waves and then you look up and the beach in front of you is different from the last time that you remembered it. You realize that the currents and waves around you have unconsciously pulled you down the beach. Or like in a boat, slipped from its anchoring, unknowingly pulled along by the currents, we too, unless we are diligent and holding fast to our anchor, will unknowingly be pulled along by the currents of this life. Having exhorted these Christians with the glorious truths of the finality and superiority of Christ's message, in considering all that is in Christ, his begottenness, that is, his being uh, of the same substance as the Father, his righteous rule 
and his eternal reign as our king, the author now turns to admonish these Christians. For they were being pulled along by various currents. They were at risk of departing from the faith that they had received. They were experiencing pressure from outside to turn aside from the gospel and uh, submit uh, to the old covenant again. And it is into this context that the author exhorts them saying, Therefore, or considering all of these things that I have just said to you about Christ, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. So often we too need this reminder. We are quick to forget the goodness of the gospel. We are quick to turn back to our own ways, to lay aside the things that we have been given in Christ, or just to forget and let the current drag us away. It can be tempting at this point to turn to a list of 10 things to improve your prayer life. Or I could give you five, spiritual, five ways to spiritual awakening. But we know none of that is useful. None of that is what the author turns to to assure these believers of the anchor that is theirs in Christ. The solution to our drifting and the solution to the drifting of these Christians is not a list of 10 things to do, There's not a list of ways to pray better, but the solution to their drifting is an encouragement to lift their eyes to the one in whom they have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And this too is our solution. When we've looked up and we see the landscape before us looking vastly different from when we last remembered, the solution to our drifting with the currents is not to turn inward, is not to look to a list to make things better, but it is to lift our eyes to the one in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And so we see here already the way in which our doctrine informs our life. He has not gone one chapter before he turns to the application of these things to the realities of our Christian life. We see the theoretical goodness of the supremacy of Christ, his glory, his majesty, put into play to provide practical assurance and comfort. We know our need to be reminded each day of what we have in Christ and to hold fast to that. Amidst trials, amidst temptations to turn back to the old ways, what is their only anchor? It is the message that has been spoken by Christ in these last days. So too for us, amidst the currents of life and the cares of this world that grab for our attention, our only anchor is Christ and his person and work for us. It is to this that we must hold fast lest we drift away. So this author, uh, having encouraged them to hold fast, then proceeds to provide an explanation as to why we must devote ourselves to this. He first argues, from the lesser to the greater. His first port of call is arguing um, from the lesser to the greater, comparing the old covenant, that covenant which is the covenant that is started at Sinai with Moses as its mediator, contrasting that with the new that began with Christ and fulfills the old covenant with Christ as its mediator. We have a lesser earthly covenant delivered by lesser beings with a lesser mediator contrasted with a greater heavenly covenant delivered by a greater messenger with Christ himself as our mediator. Having done this, he then turns and appeals to the subjection of this world to Christ as the second reason why we must hold fast to Christ as our anchor. And finally, he appeals to the subjection of even death itself to Christ. 
So again, he starts with an argument from the lesser to the greater. Secondly, he moves on to the subjection of this world to Christ. And finally, he moves on to, to, to the subjection of even death itself. So beginning in verse 2. The author first encourages these Christians to stand firm by appealing to the lesser Old Covenant administration in order to contrast it with the greater and new, uh, the greater and new covenant under Christ. For he says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. He begins first by stating the binding nature of this old covenant. And it may seem unusual to us for it to be said that this old covenant was declared by angels. But this seems to be a common conception, a common way of talking about this old covenant. For Stephen says in his speech in Acts 7 that the law was delivered by angels, and Paul declares that the law was put in place by angels in Galatians 3. All of these are saying the same thing, that the law or the old covenant was communicated to us by the angels. He is not saying that the law had its origin in the angels, for the law still had its origin in God. He is the author of all things. He is the author of both the old and the new, of all of scripture. But that the old covenant was a lesser degree because it was communicated by angels. But despite the fact that the law was delivered only by angels, he says that every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Take, for example, Numbers 15, 30 to 31. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. If this is the punishment for disobeying the old covenant, the old covenant that was not as good, the old covenant that was delivered only by angels, the old covenant that couldn't serve to give life, how much greater of an obligation do we now have to the gospel that is not delivered by angels but by the Lord himself, that is not mediated by the man Moses but is mediated by the Lord our Christ? As the author has done previously, he sets Christ over and against the angels. That's been his argument the whole way through so far. He is contrasting the worship of angels. He is contrasting the mediation of angels in the Old Covenant with the lordship and the mediation of Christ in the New. And he's doing that to show us how much greater of a salvation we have now in Christ. And in doing this, the argument is made clear. The lesser covenant given by a lesser being was true. Therefore, the greater messenger gives a greater covenant, and therefore we have a greater obligation to listen. <clears throat> Yet, we can be tempted to cast doubt on the message of the gospel so many years after the events. We can suppose that these things are just man-made doctrines passed down through generations. 2,000 years on, how are these things still applicable? How can we trust the things that we have heard? We did not hear the word from Christ's mouth in person. We did not hear him saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
How wonderful it would have been to sit in that synagogue listening to those words. But no, we sit here in Hamilton at Trinity Reformed Baptist Church 2,000 years later. How can these things still be true? We can sense the struggle that the believers that have been addressed in this letter have with this also. How can they, who have only heard secondhand of these events, how can they believe that these things are true and trustworthy? How can we truly trust the message that has been preached to us? And yet, and yet, despite all of this, despite the fact that we may struggle with these things, we can trust its faithfulness. For the author goes on to say um, that it was declared at first by the Lord and then was attested to us by those who heard. It was attested to us by those who heard. Those who heard the words of Christ have then taken those words and they have then proclaimed them to these Christians now. And this has been the pattern throughout the ages, that the first disciples heard the words proclaimed by Christ, that they proclaimed it to others, who then in turn proclaimed it down through the centuries. Just as these Christians had every reason to hold fast to the gospel because their teachers had heard Christ and preached the same message, so we too can have full assurance that these things are true. Because it is the message of Christ that we have liberty from the bonds of sin in him has stood true throughout the ages. It is not the closeness of the preacher to the physical person of Christ that makes the message valid, but it is the truthfulness of the message itself. It is not the proximity, the, the, the geographical proximity of the person to Christ, but it is the proximity of the message itself to the person and work of Christ. So we can therefore hold fast to Christ as our anchor, for his message is as true today as it was when he first stood in the temple and preached. And upon making a case for the greater author, the, for the greater like, author of, the, of the message, the writer then goes on to say in verse 4, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. While the old covenant proved to be reliable because it was a just punishment for disobedience, the new was proven to be reliable by various signs and wonders. Listen to what Calvin has to say about this. They are called signs because they rouse men's minds that they may think of something higher than what appears, and wonders, because they present what is rare and unusual, and miracles, because the Lord shows in them a singular and extraordinary evidence of his power. This here is the use of these things, that they would prove and have proven the validity and reliability of the gospel message. And together with this message, the Holy Spirit also fills and gifts his people according to his will. For this is no doctrine of angels, nor is it a message of man. This message that we have believed is given to us by the Lord himself. And this is the first reason why it holds us fast and why we can trust it to do so. Secondly, the author, having, having, having made an argument from the lesser thing to the greater thing, now moves on to say that the second reason we must hold fast to Christ as our anchor is the fact that Christ is subjecting the world to his rule. He says in verse 5, For it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him 
for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Though angels were fit for a covenant of this world, it was only designed as a type and a shadow of the world to come. The land of Canaan was a type of the heavenly city that we will one day possess. This heavenly city will encompass the whole world. Christ's coming and his work on our behalf now ushers in this new world. And in ushering in this new world, Christ proves himself to be the true second Adam. For he succeeded where Adam has failed. Adam was commanded to put all things into subjection under his will. He was commanded to rule the garden well, to bring it under the rule of God. And yet he failed that. And sin having entered the world has now destroyed that original command. But now Christ has come, and this psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him uh, for a little while lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything into subjection under his feet. It finds its fulfillment not in the creation of man, but the coming of the son of man. For Christ in his rising again and being crowned with glory and honor now inaugurates the world to come. The hope that we cling to, the anchor of our lives, is this great reality. Even still, it is hard to see past trials and temptations of this life. It is hard to avoid drifting away, taken along by cares of this world. We are ministered to in this state by what follows. He says to us, now in putting everything into subjection, in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. The language here is definitive. That is, he leaves no room for doubt in our minds as to the extent of Christ's dominion over this world. We may at many times feel like the disciples upon the lake when the storm sprang up. We can imagine how helpless they must have felt as the waves started to grow larger and larger as they started to peek over top of the boat. These waves were massive and the boat was filling up quickly. But often the pressures and, often the pressures and cares of life crowd in on us. Work gets busy, gets stressful. We may deal with sickness and we may feel the outside pressure slowly pulling us away. And yet, as Christ commanded the sea to be still and it obeyed him, so too he is putting all other things into subjection under his feet. This whole world that we live in, this whole world that is subjected to the curse of sin, is being put under the rule and reign of Christ himself. Not even our lives in this day are beyond his control. Not even the stresses and anxieties of our lives are beyond the reign and rule of Christ. Therefore, we can take comfort in Christ as our risen Lord Yet, the full realities of Christ as the risen Lord are not yet manifested. It says here in verse 8, in the second half, that at the present time, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. For in inaugurating the kingdom to come, in inaugurating the new world and the new order, we are caught between the already and the not yet. For Christ has come and he has completed the work on the cross. He has begun the new creation. But there is a time when he, when, when, between when he has begun it and when he will bring it to fulfillment. And we are now caught between those two places. We are caught between the beginning of Christ's reign and the full consummation of it. 
we do not see the full realization of this subjection now. We see the world around us. We see the, the effects of sin. We see the disobedience of God's law, and it grieves us. We see earthquakes. We see famines. We see floods. We see various kinds of sins prevailing in this world, and we may dismay. How is Christ now ruling? How are things being put into subjection? People still seem to rail against the rule and law of God and Christ. We may be tempted when we see these things to think that Christ is not in control. We may be tempted to think that the waves and currents of life are not subject to him. We may be tempted to loosen our grip upon Christ as our anchor at this point. To cast it aside, to think it's all not worth it. Christ is obviously not working in this world. But the author knows the fickleness of our hearts. He knows that we struggle with these things. He knows that we can't see the subjection of this world to Christ. And so he gives one last final reason as to why we must hold fast to Christ our anchor. He says in verse 9, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What other reason do we have to hold fast to what we have heard than the person and work of Christ himself? It is he who has come and inaugurated the new covenant. It is he who has declared to us that he has come to set us free from sin and death. And it is he who now sits enthroned at the Father's right hand. And it is he who is now subjecting all things to himself. Though we may waver, as it doesn't seem like all things are being put into subjection to him, sin still wages war against our mortal bodies. The world itself still sees the effects of the curse. We have every reason to stand firm when we consider Christ himself. For we see him. And we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels. For Christ in coming to this earth laid aside his glory. He laid aside what he had possessed as the son of God and he took on the flesh of man. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ in his coming to this earth has taken upon himself the full form of man with all its weakness except sin in order that he might redeem the fullness of us, both body and soul. Now we can say truly that he is our Emmanuel, God with us us he has not left you wavering in your sin tossed to and fro by the waves of life he has not left you to drift along in the currents of life instead he has come down in his body and has redeemed all that you are often our drifting in life comes not from beholding the person of christ we've taken our eyes off him and we've focused on other things so turn your eyes back to him for it is he who is of first importance to us. Just like we keep our heads up in the waves at the beach, so we do not float away in the current, we must fix our eyes upon Christ, 
It is he who will be your anchor amidst the currents that are pulling you away. We also see him who is crowned because of the suffering of death. Having passed through death in the grave, Christ now sits enthroned. His enthronement was by suffering the death for us. When Christ came to this earth, he not only took on your body and he lived uh, for you, he also took upon himself the suffering of death and has died for you. His crowning and enthronement are not a reward for something that he has earned. Rather, his crowning is a recognition that Christ is Lord over all, even death itself. So then, we can take comfort in the fact that even death itself has been subjected to the rule and reign of Christ. Even though your conscience may testify against you, even though Satan may accuse you, Christ has conquered all, both sin and death. And in his place, at God's right hand, he testifies on your behalf. You now have an advocate who can sympathize with you, testifying before the throne of God that you have been washed clean, that your sin has been dealt with, and that you now have life in him. And it is only through faith in Christ, who took on our human flesh and died for us, that we can have this assurance and comfort, that Christ is our anchor and advocate. Hold fast to this fact that Christ is for you. And finally, we see him who tasted death for everyone. Christ himself has tasted death, not as an example for us to follow, but as our substitute. He has died in order that we may have life in him. This is the final and ultimate reason why Christ is our anchor and why we must not neglect this beautiful doctrine. Because of Christ's humiliation and death and exaltation and glory, we can say that this fact is true for us now. As Christ now lives, we also live in him. As Heidelberg Catechism 1 says, What is your only hope in life and in death? The answer, that I am not my own, but belong, both body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. This is all by the grace of God. As Calvin so beautifully puts it, for the cause of redemption was the infinite love of God towards us, through which, through, through which it was that he spared not even his own son. Out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to you the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ himself. And as Christian 60 of the Heidelberg says, that it is as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. This is the grace of God towards you and towards me. This is our only anchor. It is our only hope. So, dear Christian, Hold fast to the message that has been declared to you. Fix your eyes upon Christ. He is a faithful advocate for us. In his body, he has redeemed us. In his death, he has given us new life. And now we look with eyes of faith at him. We see him. We know that he has risen again, that he will soon return and bring about the full realization of his reign. It is by looking upon him with the eyes of faith that we can be strong, that we can be steadfast amid the currents of life that threaten to drag you away. For it is not your swimming against the tide that holds you fast, but it is your holding fast to the anchor that keeps you. Know then this, to finish off question and answer one of the Heidelberg Catechism, he, that is Christ, 
also watches over you in such a way that not a hair can fall from your head without the will of your Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for your salvation because you belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures you of eternal life and makes you wholeheartedly and willing and ready to live from now on, uh, and ready from now on to live for him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his person and work. We thank you that in his life he lived for us and his death he died for us. We ask that through the work of your spirit you would help us to see these things. That you would help us to hold fast to them. Hold fast to the gospel. Hold fast to the person and work of Christ. For we know how easily and quickly we fall away. We know how easily and quickly we get distracted by the cares of life. We know how strong the currents are. We ask that you would keep us. That you would help us to stand firm. That you would help us to, to stay strong. And he would help us to see Christ, that he may be our motivation for this life. That looking to him, we may be uh, reinvigorated to go out and live lives that are pleasing to him. Help us in these things we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.